my name is Marcia Chatlin. I'm a professor of history at Georgetown University, but more importantly, I'm the host of Office Hours, a podcast. This is an opportunity to get a window into my world where I talk to students about the things that are most important to them. So please join us for Office Hours for the things we don't talk about in class. On today's office hours, I speak to Senior Queen Arasui, yes. a senior at Georgetown University. Hi, Queen. Hello. How was your spring break? It was it was amazing. What did you in, do? I was in South Beach, Miami. Oh my gosh! Um, With your friends? Yes. Oh, I was Lord. a young lit mommy. <laughs> <laughs> in Miami, it was amazing. Oh, that's the, those are the types of things like. Spring break, when you're your age, it's it's everything. Did you have a fun time? I had an amazing time. And okay. I documented it on Snapchat, which probably... Probably not the best choice. <laughs> but that's not the topic of this show, but it might be of a private conversation yeah. we need to have. Um, the reason why I wanted to talk to you on the podcast is the incredible work that you have been putting in around issues of criminal justice. And um, I know that you are part of uh, Professor Mark Howard's... Um, Prison Reform Initiative, I know you're spending some time at Jessup. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got interested in this very important issue? So I've always been interested in it just because of the nature of where I'm from. I'm mm-hmm. from the South Bronx. And police and crime and all that stuff is such a big part of the culture. Uh, the fact that like we have cops up and down our staircases at all, all points, like just everywhere, um, encountering police and uh, people who are subject to prison and jail is just like a big part of what I saw growing up. So I've always been interested in it. Um, I'm also a survivor of like a crime that was done against me. So I've seen the criminal justice system from both the perspectives of a victim and from the perspective of what they consider defendants. Uh, so I've seen both ends and I just think it's all broken mm-hmm. on all ends. So uh, coming to Georgetown and learning about it in the academic field as well as, uh, like, the research and things like that. It's been interesting combining my personal experience with, like, the academic world and the professional world. So this is a very common thing for people to have a personal experience that launches them um, into a professional journey. How did you – how does it feel to be immersed in this world that you know on both levels? It's difficult because for some people, it's purely something they're fascinated by academically. So – they miss certain parts that you won't have if it doesn't affect you personally, like directly, mm-hmm. either yourself or your family members. Uh, it's it's I don't think about this as a lofty just thing I'm into. I like to read about. I like to watch documentaries about it. Um, I think it's terrible. It's like a, this is a real thing. Like mm-hmm. I have faces to certain situations that are just hard to grapple with. Mm-hmm. Um I feel connections to it uh, because of where I'm from and because of people I know. So it's not just something I, I find interest in academically or what I've dedicated like my career, my undergraduate career to. It's a very personal thing. So it's 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 dragging sometimes. Yeah. Because you learn so much more mm-hmm. and it's personal. So it, it takes a toll on you on a whole different level. So as someone who has seen it as the side of, I guess the word they say is defendant, but in a lot of ways survivor. Mm -hmm. And the feelings that you have about those experiences, how does it change 
knowing about the other side. Um, I know that some of the stuff that you've worked on are false confessions, you know, prosecutorial misconduct, um, you know, police brutality. So when you learn about that element, how, how does that shape your thoughts about your own experience? It complicates it on such a deep level. Uh, I grew up wanting to be a prosecutor because uh, I survived sexual child abuse as a kid. And I've seen the criminal justice system in that way. And, like, I admired the assistant district attorneys who, like, worked my case. And um, I did a lot of the community outreach programs that the Bronx district attorneys had. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had, like, a macho advocacy program. So we had, like, ADAs who were our coaches, and they, like, volunteered, I guess, like, after work. And they taught us about, like, general criminal justice stuff, as well as mock trial stuff. And we had a competition. You could win an internship at the DA's office, which I did. So I, like, interned in the DA's office, and I saw the office as an intern when I was there before as a victim. Um, And at that point, I got to know police officers in a whole different way Mm -hmm. because they were— They were the heroes of the story. they were the heroes— um, I did see, like, how often they were prosecuting little things like marijuana stuff and, like, jumping the turnstile. Like, people were legitimately getting arrested mm-hmm. for jumping the turnstile on the train. But I also saw, like, a lot of violent things um, that people were being arrested for and, like, you know, being a part of or visiting the Sex Crimes and Child Abuse Bureau in the Bronx DA's office was difficult because I was there before. And then mm-hmm. when I was there as an intern and there as... One of my coaches was an ADA in that in that bureau. So, so coming from that perspective, that's why I say the Central Park Five documentary like single handedly like changed my mm-hmm. thinking because it combines a sex crime with like all the racial and class based bias that like the criminal justice system has, and I no longer could really fully justify just you know wanting to spearhead myself into being a prosecutor. I, mm-hmm. You know, I still struggle with it a little bit because I still think it's, I think people like myself should be in those roles because mm-hmm. the issue is that a lot of people who don't look like me and we're not from where I'm from are in those roles and don't know how to handle that. But it's still difficult to think about being responsible for petty crimes that are like yeah. ruining people's lives um, instead of like more of a harm reduction kind of approach. But so I recognize that there are victims on both sides mm. of the spectrum. It's hard to grapple with. I think that's one of the things that um, when we were talking about Ferguson initially in 2014, I don't think you were in that class. And a lot of stuff, I mean, and I really believe this, is in this horrible gray area. Very few people believe in no police, no jails. I mean, there right. you'll find them in the Bay Area because that's where <laughs> the heart. No, not no. I mean, that's the heart of the prison abolition movement right. in a lot of ways. So you might meet, you know, some people who are like none of it. Right. And there should be fewer people who believe that you know police should just do whatever they. We should live in a police state. People just mm-hmm. you know beat you for no reason. We don't want that either. And most people are deeply uncomfortable because how do you keep people safe? And how do you make sure that there is some mechanism for when people breach that trust that isn't excessive, that doesn't bankrupt communities, that doesn't tear apart families, that doesn't brutalize people? And It's so difficult. And I think why your voice is so powerful is that you realize how complicated it is. Yeah, because when you think about the Central Park Five case, there was a victim who was violently attacked Absolutely. and brutalized and probably still living with that, mm-hmm. like issues from that today. 
But then at the same time, it's like that doesn't justify imprisoning five youth who were not involved. The, perp- the actual perpetrator went on and killed and murdered, uh, raped someone else. Mm-hmm. So it's like people need to do their jobs and not like, you know, right. try to escape and force people to confess into things. But at the same time, it's like trying to value both perspectives because there was a victim in this case mm-hmm. and sex crimes are really hard to prove. Um, more, it's easier to prove in violent random attacks than mm-hmm. like when it's intimate and things like mm-hmm. that. But at the same time, it's definitely definitely a hard issue to, to grapple with. And so from your, you know, what's also kind of interesting to me is like, the fact that people are talking about mass incarceration, not just like in the leftist bookstore coffee shop. I mean, this is an unprecedented time as someone who kind of grew up with war on drugs, grew up with more police on the street and all of the anti-crime waves of the 80s and the 90s to turn on my television and to hear Republicans and Democrats say, we have too many people in prison and saying like, really, you just got that memo? You know, that that language just was not in the public. What does it feel like now to be interested in these issues and be part of a national dialogue about something that has been important to you for such a long time? I think it's incredible. And I think the new Jim Crow has a big part of like queening and pushing that word through. Uh, But in my thesis, I'm writing a thesis about uh, uh, marijuana legalization in D.C. as a racial justice issue. Um, So I'm looking at how intra-Black community uh, feelings around legalizing marijuana Mm -hmm. um, as a way to protect the Black community, whether we should do it or we shouldn't. But I think that um, it's not as clean-cut as we're we're portraying it, and it's a lot more complicated and nuanced. The way, like, the New Jim Crow era that we're in right now has a lot of people feeling like everyone's just, like, anti- police, anti, uh, just legalize all the drugs, (laughs) um, take everyone out of prison because it's way more complicated than that. It's easy for people to say, okay, petty crimes, like small possession of marijuana is okay. Like we shouldn't be locking people up for that, but no one really wants to delve into more violent crimes. And what are we doing with people who've been in jail since they were 15 and they're just like 60 years old in prison and Mm -hmm. that population, um, it comes back to the prison and the prison and school pipeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think that the nation's conversation right now is kind of still on the surface level, mm-hmm. and it needs to delve a little deeper and get a little more dirty. Because I think anyone can agree that jumping the turnstile shouldn't land you in jail, absolutely, and give you a record. And so the work that you're doing at Jessup, tell us a little bit about that class and your experiences working with people who are incarcerated? It's It's been really life-changing to be a part of this class. Uh, so it's called the Prison Reform Project, and students from Georgetown go to Jessup, and there are students at Jessup that we meet with, and together we're co-authoring, like, reports on policy suggestions for what we should do to, like, you know, decrease mass incarceration. So we're split up into three teams, uh, before prison, Inside prison and after prison, mm-hmm. we talk. We are trying to find ways to, through media or video or however each group wants to do it, find out ways to present policy change that can alter the the path that we've been going on. So I'm in the after group. So I'm working with um, students at Jessup on putting forward a video 
to expose how difficult it is to be released from prison on parole, how hard it is to get parole, and how the nature of people's crimes gets them not to get out of prison, no matter how um, they're being recommended to be mm-hmm. eligible for parole. It's difficult to get parole. Um, and it's when you are on parole, it's difficult to stay out of prison. Mm-hmm. Recidivism is pretty institutionalized because of all the little things that literally can get you back in prison. Like what? Uh, standing on a corner in a red zone, which is areas that are uh, high crime rate areas, even if you live there. Um, you can't go back home. Uh, let's say you have a, a brother that is a former felon. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not allowed to live there. Right. Um, getting robbed or, like, shot or anything, like, in a store or, like, outside in these areas um, will get you back in prison because you're not supposed to be there even if you live there. And they will prove you to go live there. But, like, being there is inherently a crime. Um, getting married without telling your P.O. What? Is a crime. That will land you back in prison. Oh, my gosh. Uh, it's it's a lot. Like, if you tell your P.O. you want to be somewhere, if you are going to break curfew for, let's say, it's a work reason or someone's in a hospital or something like that, if they don't put through your paperwork, you can land back in prison because of that. There's, like, a lot of nuances. There's a lot of costs to being on parole that, like, if you've been in jail or prison for such a long time, you don't really have income. There's just, like, a lot of non-institutional support for people who are being released from prison that it literally makes no sense. We're actually, like, setting them up to go back to prison. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly people who are coming from disadvantaged communities already. Absolutely. Um, crime just doesn't stop in certain areas just because you come back home from prison. And um, if you're not given any support, it's hard, mm-hmm. especially if you haven't been in society for, you know, decades. It's difficult just even psychologically to enter back into society. Mm-hmm. So there's some yeah. really powerful stories of people who either were exonerated or released, and they talk about that first night, the first night back. And it's it. I mean, it it's overwhelming to hear you know a grown person say, "I was afraid to sleep in a bedroom. I slept on the floor, or I just stayed up all night because I was waiting for this to end." Right. And so when you think about all the anxiety and the trauma of the experience. And then the expectation that you'll just kind of get over it and then you'll move on to the next thing. It's yeah. ridiculous, right? It's traumatic. Mm-hmm. The, the stories that we hear in there, like last visit we went, we were talking about hugs and talking about visitors. Yeah. Um, and just if they're not allowed to hug their guests anymore or like touch them. And a lot of the men in there have kids and like significant others. And so having your first hug after not having a hug for 11 years. Yeah. It's like there's a lot of psychological and emotional damage being done in there. And the point is, I'm not sure what the point of prison is anymore because it, there's not a lot of rehab, if at all, happening. Mm-hmm. So people are going in and coming out a lot worse, yeah. I would think, um, because of the solitude and because of the treatment in there, the abuse that happens in prison, um, the neglect. And it's just not really productive for anyone mm-hmm. because I understand that crimes occurred and let's say you know for the sake of this that whoever's in there isn't there for the crime that they committed it doesn't make sense to have them come out worse mm-hmm. than they went in there's like literally no institutionalized kind of rehab they're just kind of idle idly living in this new society that is completely different from outside society and then yeah what's the experience for you of i, I take it you guys take a van 
Yes. You drive all the way from Georgetown, you know, you're you're going through the highways and now you're inside a prison. Even the experience of, of, of you physically going and knowing that you get to leave and the people right. you work with don't get to. It's sad. Even just like the last words that we say before we leave, it's like, take care, you know, take it easy. It's 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 difficult. You know, we we went we had a class right after spring break and you know I was a lit mommy in Miami. <laughs> So it's, like, hard to think about how I'm going to be describing all the fun I had in Miami yeah. to people who have not been able to leave prison um, since I last saw them. It's it's definitely a difficult experience, especially the security in there. It's ridiculous. Like, they're really big on not having wired bras and yeah. um, the metal and stuff. Like, they were trying to get me to take the pins, beads out of my hair. And, like, they were just being really difficult with me the last time we went. And... You know, as a little hothead, I was angry, mm-hmm. you know, and I was, like, giving some attitude. But to think that, like, I would have to, if I was in prison, I'd yeah. have to encounter this all the time. And you can give but so much attitude before they, there's consequences that, like, you can't really do anything about. Mm-hmm. To have to deal with that kind of behavior towards you. And to hear that they do that to their their significant others and family members who come and visit, too. Yeah. They make it so difficult to visit. I mean, I understand when some of them say that they don't want their kids to come visit because the the guards and the people who work there are just so rude and mean unnecessarily. And as a you know, as a free person to go in and out of that space, there's such there's a lot of privilege that comes with that, and it's just difficult to reckon with. But then I don't want to stop going because you know yeah. we're doing this project together and we're getting to know the men on our team. So it, it's definitely hard mm-hmm. to grapple with. And so in terms of this experience changing you or getting you ready, where do you see yourself in terms of this reform movement? Well, I'm looking for a job. So <laughs> I think I want to work in this this field. I'm not sure exactly what that looks like just mm-hmm. because I think this is like a an emerging issue that's not taking place. So I'm trying to figure out exactly how a recent college grad can contribute to the space. But these experiences that I've had in the last couple months, last couple years, have really like opened my eyes to decolonizing the way I used to think about mm-hmm. prisons and crimes. And even as someone who faced a violent crime against myself, it, it's allowing me to open my eyes and see past that. Um, some crime, some crime is really gruesome and yeah. it's hard to reckon with. And I think as a society, we need to look into why people do certain things, what causes them to do that, and to think more of a health, like, health, think about it through a health perspective rather than, like, punishing, um, particularly if the punishment ends and they have to come back out. Yeah. <laughs> I think that we need to think about how race and class uh, play a role into the criminal justice system and why it's so uncomfortable. You know, um, just the numbers, the stats, of how many African Americans are in prisons and how many African Americans actually live in this country. It's it's crazy to think about. So just trying to reckon with those numbers and reckon with these issues, I think I definitely want to get more involved with this um, as I grow up, mm-hmm. <laughs> trying to figure things out. Uh, yeah. And so in terms of so this is a, these are pretty heavy issues. And in terms of making sure that your life has balance. So when you're not out fighting the good fight, and you, and you fight a lot. Um, I know that you're an excellent student, so I know that you're, you're putting time into your academics. What are some things that you do to be, you know, to sustain yourself in this type of work? Uh, I 
coming to Georgetown has been so weird and different because I'm I'm coming from a very different place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like to have fun the way I remembered I had fun back in the Bronx. So I, I'm just ratchet. <laughs> I like to have fun. And sometimes when, after you're fighting the good fight, it's great to just hang out and chill mm-hmm. and have fun the way I'm used to having fun. Uh, fun is different at Georgetown when there's more affluence around. Interesting. So, like, I'm just being myself and around people who are like me. Uh, who enjoy the same things that I enjoy, who find the same things I find funny, funny, uh, just being around that environment. Because sometimes when you're around people who are very different from you, mm-hmm. your friendship is kind of like surrounded around decolonizing or like yeah. helping them like enter your space and be comfortable in your space. But I like my direct circle to just be comfortable. Yeah. So. I can educate other people on how to be in my space or how to understand where I come from and who I am and the people that I'm used to being around. I can do that, but not when I'm trying to just chill. So let me ask you, how has Georgetown changed you? It's shown me how much of a bubble the inner city is. Mm. Um, For good and for bad, I think some of the things that I've been exposed to here— it's great that I know it, and I, it's great that I've seen it, and I'm learning to adapt and be a part of it and still be myself. But it's difficult to know that this was always like this, and I just didn't know. Yeah. You know, like, I was never a minority until I came here. At least I didn't feel like it. Mm-hmm. Like, I never was a minority in my classroom. Um, I experienced, like, I understood the racial dynamics, like, when I'd go into the city or whatever. But, like, where I'm from, it's completely comfortable. Uh, everyone is, everyone is, like, like me, mm-hmm. and on some level, um, even if it comes down to being first generation American, most people in the Bronx are from another country, or their parents are from another country. Um, so coming to Georgetown has completely shown me what America actually is like, mm-hmm. or at least more what America is like. Um, experiencing discrimination or just like not being comfortable on. Race, class, gender, sexuality, all mm-hmm. those different identities. At one time, it was just very scary. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I wonder if I would have preferred to have gone to one of those schools where I was the only black kid as a younger person. To get you to, ready for the To experience. get me ready for college. But I think I have decided that I would not have wanted that. Mm-hmm. I appreciated growing up around people who were like me and being having the foundation to become comfortable in who I was. Uh, because I don't know if I can handle that as a first grader, you know, mm-hmm. getting like, I don't know, someone making fun of my hair or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that like that, that kind of stuff or someone touching my hair the way like people do now. I think that that would that development stage. I don't think I would have wanted that. Yeah. And I have one last question for you. I ask everyone on the podcast. If there's one thing you wish your professors knew about you or you could tell them about you, what would it be? Ooh. I'm very multifaceted. Yes, you are. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> and that plays into how I, how I am a student mm-hmm. and how I am as a person. So I think a lot of professors, particularly at Georgetown, are just so used to certain kinds of students that come from certain kinds of backgrounds, which allows them to be 100% just about their schoolwork. And I think when you deal with more multifaceted students who don't come from generations of Hoyas or just other, like, 
educated parents or even uh, parents who are from this country, I think that recognizing the where students are coming from and how and why they operate a certain way. Because for the most part, we all got here because we have a level of capacity to do work or to, you know, to, to have it work out. Like, we all have the capacity to do this stuff. It's more like we're doing it at different rates or doing it, or it comes out in a different way. So to remember the diversity and experience as to why students operate a certain way. Students don't want to just have difficult times. Yeah. Yeah. I ask for an extension because I need it. It's not just because I want to do your paper for a longer period of time. Um, just keeping that in mind. Thank you so much, Queen. Thank you. It's good interview. You're really good. Thank you for visiting Office Hours. Office Hours, a podcast, is a production of Dr. Marsha Chatlin and Alex Tyson. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers. Join us on social media, on Twitter at Office Hours Pod, and on Instagram on Office Hours Podcast.